Good morning. My name is Dustin, and I'm on staff here at South Point. I get the privilege of working with our students and also in our worship ministry, and I'm just really excited to be able to talk with you guys this morning. Now, if this is your first week with us, you've chosen a really good week to start because we're actually kicking off a new series. This is not it. Um, <laughs> I do like that, but we're kicking off a new series this morning, um, and the name of the series is called I Choose. Now, for this entire calendar year, all of 2021, we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we've been taking this deep dive into examining who is the person of Jesus, who is this Jesus. And the reason that we're calling this series I Choose is because we've looked at Jesus closely. We've talked about who he is, we've talked about what he's done for us, we've talked about what he continues to do, we've talked about what he offers us to all those who are deciding to follow him. And so the reason we're calling it I Choose is because Jesus requires us to make a decision. In order to have a relationship with him, he requires that we choose him, that we choose him over ourselves, that we choose him over our sin, that we choose him over the world, that we choose him over religion. Essentially, Jesus calls us to choose him over everything else. And so for this series, we're going to stay the course and we're going to keep talking about Jesus openly and candidly, and we're also going to present opportunities for people to make this decision. And the spoiler alert is, Jesus, since he requires us to make a decision, we are going to ask you to make this decision to follow him. It's going to go back to that every single time, but we also believe that this is the best decision that you could ever make in your life. And so we're going to jump into it, but before we do, let's pray together. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the free gift of him dying on a cross for our sin so that we could have a relationship with you, that we don't have to bear our sin and shame, that you take broken people and you put us back together, you give us a new life. God, I pray that you speak through your word right now. I pray that the message of how well or how well you know us and how much you love us anyway, despite all our shortcomings, I pray that that shines through. And I pray that you make this decision to follow you. God, I pray that you make that clear to us of how good it is and how much it impacts and changes our lives. Let this be all about you and not about me or anyone else in this room. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to be reading out of the book of John, like I said, and we're actually going to be in John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. So if you have your physical Bible, then you can open up to John chapter 2, verse 13. Now, last week, the series that we finished, we were actually towards the end of Jesus' life on earth. For this series, we're actually jumping back on the timeline a little bit. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of context about where we are because it's important. Um, so where we are in the biblical timeline is right after Jesus has performed his first miracle. So Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. He was at a wedding. They ran out of wine. And Jesus took uh, a bunch of gallons of water and he turned them into wine. And that was the first miracle that he performed. This is right after that. So right after this wedding, Jesus and his disciples, his entire crew, they're heading back to Jerusalem for uh, a festival to celebrate the Jewish Passover, and so that's where we're picking up. So John chapter 2, verse 13, and you can read along. It says this. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts. 
both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Now, this passage is one of my favorite because I think a lot of times we miss in Scripture just how passionate Jesus actually is. In this passage, we see him kind of stirred up. We see him angry. Um, which is, is always interesting to me when you see Jesus exhibiting uh, characteristics that you don't normally see. Now, some of you may not know this about me, but I used to be a bit of a hothead. I used to want to argue and fight and get in uh, confrontations about everything, literally everything. That was, that was who I was. I was one of those types of people. Anger was a language that I was very fluent in. Now, if you know me now, that's not really my personality, um, Although, I do have a very angry-looking face. I'm aware of this. I don't look like a nice person. But that angry side of my personality, for the most part, God has tempered that down. I, I think a lot of, when it comes down to it for me, is that growing up, I didn't really feel good enough, and I didn't really feel attractive enough or quite talented enough, and so I think a lot of times I just overcompensated by putting on a show for people, or more frequently by getting angry any time that anyone did anything that I felt disrespected me or put my value into question. Now, the more I seek after Jesus and the more I understand him and the more I understand myself, I've come to realize that the value and the identity that I was seeking, that he'd already paid for it on a cross 2,000 years ago. And so now I realize that my value comes from him, which means the things that I used to get worked up about, it's almost laughable to me now when I look back at myself. Now, is that to say I don't get snappy sometimes? I definitely do. But thankfully, by God's grace, I'm married to a woman who's very good at rolling her eyes at me. Now, all that's to say that I'm very fluent and I can understand when someone's puffing out their chest for no reason, when it's all for show, when their anger is a put on. And I think one of the telltale signs is that these types of people get angry and worked up all the time about everything like I did. So when you look at Jesus getting angry in this moment, this is not for nothing. This is righteous anger. This is holy Anger and the fact that Jesus only gets angry a handful of times should point out to us that this is significant. And so for me, when you get a picture of what makes God angry, because Jesus represents God in the flesh, he's the visible picture of the invisible God. And so Jesus in this moment is giving us a very clear picture of what makes God angry, which I think is useful information for believers because if you know what makes God angry, then you can make a very conscious decision to not do that thing that makes God angry. And so, what is it in this passage that makes Jesus so upset? I think a lot of people read through this and their analysis is that Jesus is angry because religious leaders are ripping people off. 
They're taking advantage of people. They're swindling them out of money. This is people in power stealing money and taking advantage of people. And I understand the reflex to go there because when we get taken advantage of, when we get money taken away from us, that's one of the quickest ways to make us angry. Take money from me, take money from someone that I care about, and I'm going to get angry really quickly. Like, have you ever got those texts from the FBI that are like, your identity's been stolen, we just need you to send in some information so that we can help you, but the entire thing's a scam, right? People trying to swindle you out of money are actually one of my favorites. I get this text, I literally get this text every day that says this. It says, hey John, with this one magic pill you can lose your massive gut in just 30 days. Now, first of all, I get self-conscious because I didn't even know that I had a massive gut. And I also didn't know that my name was John. So it's all very confusing that people are trying to swindle you out of money. But seriously, getting money taken away from you, especially when you're in need, especially when you don't have money to spare, that fires us up, and rightly so. So I think it's only natural for people to read this passage and to attribute that to why Jesus is angry. People ripping other people off, but what we have to remember is that Jesus' disciple Matthew was a tax collector, which is one of the most clever money swindlers there were back in Jesus' day. And so Matthew himself has swindled a lot of people in need out of money, and yet here he is in Jesus' posse as one of his chosen. And so if it were about money, my guess would be Matthew would be slinking to the back of the group, trying not to be seen because he doesn't want to get beat by this whip that Jesus has put together. So I don't think that it's about money. And so if it's not about money, then why is Jesus mad? You see, to me when I read this, it seems really clear. To me when I read this, I think Jesus is mad not because leaders are ripping people off and taking their money. I think Jesus is mad because these leaders, they've taken the temple. They've taken people's only way to interact with God. They've taken people's only venue to talk to God. They've taken people's only method of even having a relationship with God, and they've turned it into something else. Essentially, they've taken a God thing, and they've turned it into a human thing. And what I find compelling about reading the passage this way is that if you read this passage, you read the problem in this passage being that religious leaders are taking money away from people and that people are swindling other people and tricking other people, well, that's really easy for pretty much everyone in this room to immediately distance themselves and say, you know, I'm not a thief. I've never stolen anything in my life. I'd never rip someone off, especially someone in need. So if you read it that way, then it's really easy to point at these religious leaders and be like, they're bad. They're like bad, bad. Like, shame on them if that's the problem. But if the, if the problem is actually taking this relationship with God as he intended it, taking this, having a relationship with him as he's laid it out and turning it into something else, well, if that's the problem, I think all of us become guilty of that. Because we've either done it or we do it, or at some point we're going to do it in the future. You see, Jesus lays out really clearly in black and white, and depending on your Bible, maybe in red, he lays out really clearly in this book what it means to have a relationship with him, what it means to be obedient to him, what it means to lay down your life, what it means to follow him. I think a lot of times, instead of just taking Jesus at his word and having a relationship with him on his terms, I think too many times we like to treat it like an a la carte menu, where it's like, 
yeah, I like this. I'm not so crazy about that. But I do, I do really want this part of the relationship, but I'm also going to pretend like I don't even see that over there. We take the parts that we like, the parts that resonate with us, and then we discard the rest. And so for these religious leaders, what they're doing, what they're keeping, and everything that God's laid out is the system of sacrificing animals for forgiveness, which if you didn't know, it worked pretty much like this. It worked pretty much like, have you done something wrong? Well, if you've done something wrong, don't even worry about it. Just come to the temple, and you can buy an animal. You can buy a a dove or a sheep or a goat, or if you're really bad, maybe you should buy a cow just in case. And you'll buy this animal, and then we'll take it, and we'll take it a little bit further into the temple for you, and we'll have this animal killed, and then it's blood being spilled, you'll be forgiven for everything you've done wrong, and you'll be back in God's graces again, and so then you can go and live your life until you mess up again, and then you're going to need to come back and, and buy another animal, and then we can start this entire process again. You would mess up, and you'd come, make a sacrifice, and be forgiven. Now, doesn't that sound exhausting? Well, it was. Doesn't that sound expensive? Well, it was. If you take away the animal sacrifices and replace them with Hail Marys and Our Fathers, doesn't that sound a little bit like Catholicism? You tell me. Well, this system worked for these religious leaders, and so they took this thing that God had created so that people could be forgiven, so they could have a relationship with him. And instead of making it about the relationship, they made it all about the animals and the sacrifice. And it was no longer about having a relationship with God. It was about trying to save yourself and earn God's grace, which is impossible. It's always been impossible, and it's still impossible today. And by the way, God saw straight through how fake this was. He knew this was an act. He knew this had become corrupt. He knew this entire system had been ruined And I'll prove it. If you go back in the Old Testament, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, arguably one of the most well-known prophets, he has this message from God in the opening chapter of his book. And and think about this. Jesus is flipping over tables in the courts. He's he's calling out these religious leaders for the fakeness, the, the fraudulence of all of it. This passage we're about to read is written 700 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. And it says this. It says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate With all my being, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Jesus, or the, uh, God's going to look forward now. Come now and let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is almost 700 years 
before Jesus even comes onto the scene. God speaks through Isaiah and says to these Israelites, what are you even doing? Don't you recognize how corrupt and fake all of this is? And so, because it's so fake, I don't even want it anymore. So save your sacrifices because you don't want a relationship with me. You don't want a new life. You don't want the life that I've laid out for you. You just want a few more days to feel okay about yourself and to be able to keep just doing whatever you want. And then at the end of the passage, God points ahead to Jesus when he says, your scarlet sins will be washed white as snow, but it's not going to be because of these religious games the people are playing. It's going to be because the Son of God is going to come down in the flesh and do what we cannot do. And then later in the Old Testament, in the book of Amos, when's the last time you cracked open the book of Amos? It'll be on, not a bag of famous Amos cookies, but the actual biblical book of Amos. God says this in the book of Amos, another prophet. He says this, and it sounds similar. It says, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts, of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God is coming after these Israelites again and again and again saying, you're all so fake and this is all just a game to you and you're all so disingenuous that I don't even want to hear you sing anymore. Then he points ahead again and says, justice is coming, righteousness is coming, but it's not going to be like this, not by this corrupt system. And as we know, Jesus would go on to be that justice and righteousness. God is pointing out that their ways are flawed, but a better way is coming. This is 700 years before. Now, 700 years later, Jesus walks into the temple and they're playing the same inauthentic, corrupt, fake church games that he told them to stop playing through Isaiah almost 700 years ago. And so it's time to start flipping over the tables. This is why Jesus is upset. They've taken a God thing and they turn it into something else. So the question for us today is have we done that? What have we made this about? What have we made following Jesus all about? Are we in it purely for him? Are we here from a place of awe and wonder that a relationship with God is even possible, that he loves us? Are we singing worship songs because we're so overwhelmed by his goodness and his grace that we can't help but praise him? Are we even opening this book? And if we are opening this book, is it just to check off our daily Bible reading box or is it because we are genuinely hungry to just know more about who he is? Because I think God is making it extremely clear through Isaiah and Amos and Jesus that if you're just here to play church games and pretend and go through the motions that you're just spinning your wheels and you're not going to like where it takes you, it's fruitless. Because the truth is without Jesus as the foundation, without Jesus as the what and the how and the why, the singing is worthless. And the serving, God doesn't want it. And the obedience, it can't save you. Because none of it was meant to save you. All of it was meant to express our love to the creator and to build our relationship with Jesus. And when it's no longer about Jesus, it officially becomes worthless. And I don't know about you, but in 2021, I don't have enough time in my life to keep entertaining worthless things anymore. 
and I have wasted enough time on worthless things and playing worthless games, and I've officially had enough. Have you had enough? And so Jesus flips over tables, and he takes their money, and he throws it around, and he grabs a whip and starts driving people out of the temple in droves because these religious leaders are leading people in the wrong direction, and these believers are just going through the motions. And not only is it not enough, but it's actually a mockery to the amazing relationship that God actually wants to have with them. And so if the physical Jesus were to walk into this church today, or if he were to walk into our homes today, 2,000 years after his death, and 2,700 years after speaking through Isaiah, would he find a community and individuals who are desperately seeking after him, or would he find a bunch of people still playing church games and going through the motions? You see, they made it all about sacrifices. We are obviously not sacrificing animals. I think we make it about a few different things. I think we like to make it all about being a good person in one way or another. Even if we say we don't, even if we say we know that's not what having a relationship with Jesus is about, I think a lot of times that's how we function. Or we like to make it about taking a stand against a corrupt society or, or voting the right way or calling out the right people or posting the right things. You know, bring your Bible to school and, and bring your Bible to work. That way everyone knows how much you love God, but you barely open it when you're at home. Or fight for the right to pray in schools and, and fight for the right for teachers to, to teach creationism in schools even though we barely pray with our families and when we're by ourselves. Or do everything we can to protest and outlaw certain sins and lifestyles for other people even though we're actively just ignoring the sin that's in our own life. Or come into this place and sing louder than everyone else and pursue some feel-good, warm and fuzzy moments, maybe even cry a little bit, but then barely reflect Jesus at all with how we live and treat people when we leave this place. Jesus is telling these Israelites and he's telling us to stop taking this relationship with him and turning it into something it was never meant to be. Now, of course, these Israelites, they're not trying to hear this. <laughs> and so they push back against Jesus and they say, this, the Jews responded, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Essentially, they're like, who are you, dude? Why would we ever listen to you? How about you prove your God before you start coming after us? And what we have to remember is to this point, like I said, John has only recorded one miracle of Jesus, turning water into wine, and not a lot of people saw that. And so the jury's still kind of out about who Jesus is. Now we know that soon Jesus is going to walk on water and that he's going to take a couple loaves of bread and a few fish and multiply them to feed 15,000 people. And we know that he's going to put his hands on blind people and they're going to be able to see. And he's going to tell paralyzed people to stand up and walk and they're actually going to do it. He's going to cast demons out of people who are possessed. And Jesus is actually going to go on to raise three separate people back from the dead there's literally no limit to what Jesus can do. And so in this moment, Jesus could have performed any miracle to say, yeah, I'm God. But he doesn't. Instead, Jesus points ahead to the most important thing he will ever do for us. Jesus responds like this. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, as it says in the passage, Jesus isn't talking about the physical temple they're all standing in. He's not talking about a building. 
Jesus is pointing ahead to the fact that eventually he is going to be broken and eventually he's going to hung on a cross, be hung on a cross to die for the sins of the world, only to raise back to life after three days. Jesus is saying that what's going to give me my authority to tell you that there's a better way is that I'm going to go on to suffer and die to make a better way. What's going to give me the authority to tell you that the animal sacrifices have to stop? I'm going to go become the last sacrifice. And you see, this is huge. This is groundbreaking because Jesus is interrupting the system as it exists. He's changing things. But he's not changing the law because the law still remains. He's not changing how God views sin because God still detests sin for how it destroys our lives. And he's not changing the punishment for sin because the punishment is still death. Jesus is actually only changing the way that we can be reconciled to God. He's saying you had to earn it before and you had to be good enough and you had to try really hard and if you couldn't, then you had to pay for your forgiveness. But that's all about to change now because instead of you earning it, I'm going to earn it for you. Instead of you trying to be good enough, I'm already good enough. And instead of you having to sacrifice animals to earn forgiveness, I'm going to sacrifice myself so that you can be forgiven freely. And why am I going to do that? Because I love you more than you could even begin to imagine. And I don't want you to have to keep playing church games and jumping through hoops and trying to fight to be good enough and exhausting and destroying yourself to try to live up to some impossible expectation because the truth is, I just want to have a relationship with you. And when you say yes to this relationship, I can clean up all of that mess for you. And I'm going to make you new, and I'm going to make you righteous, and I'm going to give you peace, and I'm going to set you apart because I love you. That's what I'm offering. That's where my authority comes from. Now, of course, these Israelites... They don't see this. They don't comprehend this. They can't comprehend what Jesus is saying, what he's offering them. There's this veil over their eyes, which if you read through the rest of the Gospels, you can see this. Jesus lays out who he is and what he's going to do, and people just can't wrap their heads around it. And so they say what to Jesus? He says, destroy this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. I'm going to go and die on a cross for you so you can have a new life in a relationship with me, and their reply is, well, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. Think of it now as someone saying, Jesus, can't you see how hard we've worked, how much we've put into this, how much we've invested? And I think it's easy for us, again, to watch these people from the outside and just like facepalm, like, what are you, what are you doing? Jesus is offering himself freely, and you'd rather work really hard but again, I think we do the same thing. You know, it's really hard to be a good person. It's really hard to not say certain things or do certain sign language when people cut you off in traffic. At least for me. And it's really hard to not put, or it's really hard to put everyone else before yourself and not be the main character in your own life. And it's really hard to not compare your life and what you have and what you've accomplished to everyone around you. And it's really hard to not get all puffed up when you accomplish something and feel all proud. And it's, it's really hard to not be self-deprecating when you fail. It's really hard to not worry and never get anxious. It's really hard to not participate in any way in what 
this world has to offer, it's really hard to not sin. It's really hard to be a good person. But for some reason, somehow it's even harder to just accept the truth of the gospel. That God loves us so much that he refused to let us stay dead in our sin. For some reason, it's even harder to just pursue a relationship with Jesus. Like, it's work. It's, somehow it's work to pick up this book and try to get to know Jesus better. Somehow it's work to just find quiet moments to just sit and pray or even just think about God or just sing genuinely to him. It's work to set aside time to do this. And I know this because I've talked to so many people and experienced this myself, people who are hurting and struggling and broken and stagnant and just sick of what life has to offer them and they just want this relationship with Jesus, but then when, when we get down to it, when we talk about, you know, how are you pursuing this relationship? How are you pouring into this relationship? Well, then the excuses and the reasons start coming out of, you know, I'm just really busy. I'm just really tired or I'm preoccupied and the kids are crazy or work is crazy or school is really busy right now. And this list of responses, and to me it sounds a lot like what the Israelites said. Sounds a lot like it's taken 46 years to build this temple. It sounds a lot like you don't understand how much is going on. You don't understand how much I've been through. You don't understand how hard it is for me. You don't understand what I've done. And you're right. I don't know any of that. But I know what Jesus has done. And I believe that in this passage, Jesus is telling us that the church games and the pretending, and the going through the motions, it's just not working anymore, and it's not enough. But Jesus declares that he is enough. And so our decision for this first week is this. I either choose to try and have a relationship with Jesus on my own terms, or I choose to have a relationship with Jesus on his terms. We either continue to function the way we're functioning with whatever we've turned this relationship with him into, however we're living this out, we either continue to do that or we follow Jesus on his terms. And the choice is yours, but only one of these choices brings life. And so my challenge to you for this week is for you to find time on your own and just pray to God and pray that he reveals to you exactly where you are with all this. Where am I at with what Jesus has done for me? Where am I at with my decision to follow him and what I want to do with that? Where exactly am I at? And after he reveals where you're at, just pray, how do I come home? What's the way home for me? And if it's not all about Jesus, make it clear to me that it's for nothing. Make it clear to me that he's the only way. And then we make our decision. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for what you've done for us. And God, I just confess, just for myself, because I can't for anyone else in this room, I confess the ways in which I've messed this up time and time again and the ways in which I've put focus on things that I was never meant to focus on and the way that I've poured energy into things that can't sustain me and they can't save me. 
Jesus, I just pray in any way that I'm doing that right now, any way that I do this day to day, I pray that you just make that clear to me so I can cut it out of my life because all I want is to chase after you and I want this genuine relationship with you and I want what you have to offer and I want it on your terms because I know that your terms are the only way that actually work. And I pray for every person in this place that if they found themselves stagnant or broken or just not experiencing this, if it feels fake or it feels disingenuous, that God, I just pray that you reveal to them the right way to come back home to you. I pray that you put Jesus at the forefront of that, that they understand that he is the foundation and that apart from him, nothing can happen. Nothing moves forward. This is literally all about you, Jesus. Make yourself so good to us that we cannot focus on anything else. Make yourself so good to us that anything else looks like garbage, as Paul said it. Don't let us be a community that wastes any more time on useless, worthless things. I pray that you step into our lives and start flipping over tables and start cutting out the junk, start revealing to us the one thing that's good. Give us the discernment and the wisdom and the desire to chase after it with everything that we have so that we can be changed, we can be made new, we can be saved, and we can experience a life with you that we could never dream of before. We love you. And we pray in your name and your name alone. Amen.